0: Welcome to the TF Blockchain Podcast, where we interview blockchain, Bitcoin, and cryptocurrency innovators actively building, growing, and investing in this emerging technology. I'm your host and founder of TF Blockchain, Jonathan G. Blanco. TF Blockchain hosts quarterly conferences and monthly events live recorded for this podcast. Our current chapters are located in Seattle, Portland, Vancouver, San Francisco, Austin, San Antonio, and Dallas. Our upcoming conferences will be TF5 in Seattle on March 19, 2020 and TF6 in Austin on June 4th, 2020. To get involved with TF Blockchain, participate in future TF conferences, attend a chapter in your area, or to start a new chapter, please visit tfblock.io. Hey, I want to share a special promo with you from our friends over at CoinMine so you can get your very own CoinMine 1 and mine cryptocurrency from your house in the simplest way possible. I have one, I love it, and I want to make sure you can get one too. So visit coinmine.com slash TFBlock and use discount code TFBlock to get $50 off. This podcast is presented by TF Labs, a blockchain product and startup studio. TF Labs collaborates with companies from growth stage to enterprise in order to establish their blockchain product strategy. As a startup studio, TF Labs builds and validates internal products to one day be spun out as companies. To partner or get involved with TF Labs, please visit us at tflabs.io.
1: I am very pleased and um, thankful to have Rick Shreves and Chef here from Mercy Corps. And we're going to talk a little bit about uh, decentralized ledger technology and crypto in humanitarian aid efforts. Woo. Awesome. Welcome. <laughs> awesome, guys. Well, I would love for you to introduce yourself and just talk a little bit about uh, your background and how you got into this space, what interested you in this?
2: Sure, thanks a lot, Carrie. Uh, My name's Rick Shreves, Uh, my title at Mercy Corps is the Director of Emerging Technology. Uh, I've been with Mercy Corps for about four years. Um, That title basically means I I get to do all the fun stuff at Mercy Corps. So uh, in the portfolio that I work with, uh, I, I cover a lot of ground, we do VR, we do AI and machine learning, we do DLT and crypto, Uh, We also do a bit of work with biometrics, Uh, we've been doing some IOT stuff or we've been looking at some IOT stuff. Uh, You know, really a lot of sort of bleeding edge things that you don't normally hear about in the humanitarian aid world. Uh, We do that because we have a very, very uh, fortunate partnership uh, with Cisco. Uh, And Cisco provided what we call the Tech for Impact Grant. Uh, They granted to Mercy Corps $10 million across the course of five years and uh, that pays for a lot of the team that I'm on, and it also provides me with a small bucket of cash that I can use for setting up field trials and proofs of concepts. So my team's charged with going out and identifying new tech that we think may have an application for our work, then spin up trials of that tech, and if it's got legs, well then we hand it off to somebody else at the agency and they take it to scale, and we move on to the next thing. And if it doesn't have legs, well we take the learnings, we publish them out, and we move on to the next thing. Uh, in that portfolio is our DLT and crypto work, uh, which it's taken us several years to get up to critical mass at the agency. And what I mean by that is uh, building enough you know, buy-in and getting enough acceptance from the agency that there was a mandate to go out and work with this. Realize that in our space, and, and then I'll shut up, <laughs> that in our space uh, it's actually really hard to work with emerging tech, because we're a donor-driven organization, right? We're a nonprofit and donors don't really want to hear that you've taken their money and you've spent it on a speculative new technology. What they wanna hear is that you've spent it on a proven technology that delivers measurable results and gets them impact. So Cisco's really a bit of a unicorn uh, donor for us and we feel very, very lucky to be able to work with them. Uh, and I'm happy to dive into more of that later with you, but this is introductions time, so <laughs> over to you Alpin.
3: Thanks. Um, so again, my name's Alpen and I joined Mercy Corps about four months ago and the reason why I joined uh, is that I had been working in the crypto blockchain space for about four years, maybe three and a half, four years. Um, And I'd seen a lot of innovation in thinking, in methods, in bringing ideas together, a lot of engineering, um, sort of uh, creative, uh, creative engineering related to cryptography, related to um, you know, distributed consensus mechanisms, and all kinds of uh, layers of the system. But when you look at, well, who will this impact, there are these assumptions that you know, this will actually level the playing field, that this will actually be something that a lot of people beyond <laughs> the current status quo will be able to access. And I think that that's actually an open question. I think that you can design a lot but unless you really understand what the challenges are out there, you know, any technology, any product faces user adoption issues. And this is the height of that. I mean, the kinds of people that we talk about trying to impact are very, very remote. Sometimes they don't have the right connectivity, they don't have the right device, et cetera. So when I met Rick, and actually I met Rick at a Tech Fest event here, Techfest PDX, speaking about what Mercy Corps was doing, that got me very excited about the challenge that he and his team have been taking on. And I said, you know, I'd like to get involved in this. And so my role at Mercy Corps is senior technologist. And I focus on blockchain, cryptocurrency, smart contracts. Um, I have a background in um, and, and my dissertation PhD work is related to insurance and microinsurance. Um, so I, I, I involve some of that in what I'm doing, but essentially uh, Mercy Corps is unique in several different ways and one of those is that they do take big bets with, uh, with innovation when they think it can make an impact and uh, just for context Mercy Corps operates in 40 plus countries around the world. There's a, there's a focus on countries that are facing uh, either natural disasters and or conflicts and um, catastrophes related to uh, other sources where people are in need, whether they're refugees, internal refugees or refugees moving from one country to another um, and facing various kinds of uh, distress. And we do all kinds of programming from providing cash distributions all the way to um, helping farmers improve uh, their livelihoods and the, and the approaches that they take. Um, and There's work across the board and we can get into it, but the idea that we can take the technologies, even as they're developing with blockchain and cryptocurrency, and think instead of like waiting to eventually think about who this will serve, let's think about who we're trying to serve and inform the design, you know, as we move through the innovation, right? So that's what got me excited. That's what got me at Mercy Corps.
1: Yeah, that's great. So you talk about challenge and you talk about innovating a space where there are a lot of challenges. What was talk about the reasoning that Mercy Corps decided to sort of jump into this direction of decentralized ledger technology and crypto.
2: When when uh, I joined the agency in 2016, um, at that point in time, I'd already been in the crypto space for a number of years. Uh, And some of the people at the agency knew that I had that background and they asked me to write up for our internal teams just sort of a briefer on what's blockchain and what's cryptocurrency. Uh, I wrote it up, it was well received, and then they said, we, we actually would like to release this publicly now. Can you turn this into a public-facing white paper? And so in May of 2017, we published a white paper called uh, A Revolution in Trust, which was a look at distributed ledger technologies and humanitarian aid and development. Uh, it made quite a few, waves within our sector uh, generated quite a bit of interest within the sector stimulated a number of conversations it got us invited to a number of discussions Uh, we're on a couple of wef working groups that are looking at blockchain Uh, i'm a member of the oecd's blockchain expert policy advisory board Uh, we're part of the libra association Uh, i'm on the libra technical steering committee You know, so we wound up being an early mover in this space and and we still do quite a bit of influence and policy related work. Uh, But, while that happened actually fairly quickly and relatively easily, it was really hard still to get the buy-in internally with our teams to start doing real trials with this technology. Uh, You know, it took us a bit to get a few other internal evangelists, uh, or cheerleaders if you will, who were on board with this before we were able to find use cases that had enough impetus behind them for us to go forward. So it's been, it's been quite a struggle for us to actually practically get into the deployment phase, right? Uh, and we don't now have as many programs in trial as some of our, of our peer agencies do. Um, but that's slowly changing, courtesy of this gentleman <laughs> to my right, who has been a wonderful find for us, because one of the other big challenges that we have is, uh, is talent. I mean, right now, you know, the, the whole sort of FinTech boom has really sucked the air out of the room when it comes to hiring expertise in this space. Everyone that's got chops is either working for a financial services firm or they're in a startup, right? Uh, and the sort of salaries and things that we can offer them in the NGO world really aren't terribly competitive. So getting access to that sort of talent and that sort of skill set has been something that's a major challenge for us to move into the implementation phase. Uh, Because for all those same reasons trying to outsource it, you know, it's incredibly expensive, right? There's a big ticket attached to anything you want to do in this space these days. Uh, So those are a lot of the practical hurdles that we face. That's different than the hurdles we face in the field, which Alpin touched on a while ago. uh, Dealing with poor electricity environments, poor internet connectivity environments, uh, financial literacy problems, just pure illiteracy problems, those sort of things. And of course the crazy mismatch of regulatory environments that we deal with working in 43 different countries around the world. Uh, you know, it ranges from everything that's really permissive to we haven't even looked at it yet to absolutely not. Uh, and it makes it a big challenge for us.
3: Yeah. You want to add to that? Yeah, no, I'll just add a couple more things, I think. So one of the key reasons why we're interested in cryptocurrency or some 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 just prefer to call it digital currency. Um, is that you know a lot of people may not know this, and I don't think I knew this before I got to understand what Mercy Corps and, and other related humanitarian agencies do, which is that um, in many parts of the world, what humanitarian organizations are doing these days is actually what's called cash uh, transfer programming. They're actually providing cash to households and families uh, on a monthly basis or on a weekly basis, and it provides them a way to sustain their, their life over a, a, a series of months, years, sometimes living in refugee camps or living in kind of precarious conditions. And when we do that kind of work, oftentimes that money is transferred in physical form. So it actually has to be transferred from a headquarters location. You know, it's coming from a donor, then it's being transferred through a program under Mercy Corps' kind of program governance. Then it goes to a country team, and actually the way the organization is built out, it's actually federated. Each of the countries have their own offices and their own uh, bureaucratic structures then it gets transferred. I mean, you keep transferring money, you're paying all of those costs, you're also dealing with all kinds of risks along the way. And we're at, we're at a point in, you know, we're in 2020, there are ways to transfer value that could be cheaper. And I think across the board, all the stakeholders would see value in that, right? From the donors, to Mercy Corps itself, to the beneficiaries that wanna see more of the dollar reach them. Um, And so when we think about things like digital currency, we're seeing that that is a key mechanism for transferring value to these vulnerable populations. It's just that we have to figure out a lot of the, the pieces, like Rick just mentioned, whether it's regulatory, whether it's an infrastructure question, whether it's a literacy question, all those things come up. But I think we're at a place where now a lot of different humanitarian agencies, UN agencies, uh, regulatory bodies realize that we need to you know coordinate and come to some agreement around how to do this so that um, that doesn't become the impediment and that doesn't create poverty and/ or create new kinds of inequality um, and that's where you know especially with what you know Rick actually put together that piece on revolution and trust that actually not only speaks to this the idea of how to transfer value and in better ways more transparent ways but how the entire sector of humanitarian aid can be actually conducted in a more accountable way in a more effective way by using technology like blockchain right so there are actually other implications beyond digital currency but I think digital currencies is pretty um, powerful in and of itself
2: yeah if I, if I could jump in on that really what happened was a bit of an evolution in thinking because in uh, late 2016 early 2017 when I was finishing up that paper it was pre stablecoin days right and so that paper tended to focus largely on DLT and what that blockchain back end could do in a variety of different use cases and really sort of de-emphasize the cryptocurrency side of things because the volatility risk was so high, right I mean we can't really go out and, and do cash transfers with a highly volatile currency to beneficiaries we might be doing more harm than good right so after that was published, uh, and when it was published, we thought, oh, DLT is the way to go, let's really find these blockchain use cases. And, and really, that became a very difficult sell internally. It was a new tech, it was an infrastructure investment for a lot of people. You know, many times, let's face it, it's distributed network technology by its very nature. It, it comes from that sort of sharing environment and the opportunities that it, that it produces. It was hard to get our peer agencies on board with it and our donors and our regulators. Then stablecoins came along mm-hmm. and suddenly the cash transfer programming side of things got really interesting and that's now where most of our efforts and field trials are occurring is how can we use a low volatility, low cost digital currency with a blockchain accounting back end to allow us to move value in a way that's more efficient reduces the opportunities for fraud and gives everybody a, a better a trail that they can follow in these things.
1: Mm-hmm. Is do you feel that that stable coin was the buy in because you talk about donors buying in, leadership buying into this idea. Do you think that was sort I, of
2: I, I think it was a combination of stable coins yeah. and also a uh, uh, realizing that with things like ERC20 tokens, we could actually mm-hmm. spin up a bespoke token that had no secondary market value, and use it like an electronic voucher, right? Because a lot of that cash transfer programming work that's done is done via the use of a voucher of some sort or a pre uh, a preloaded debit card uh, that goes to a network of vendors who have been authorized to accept it, and it closes a loop, right? It makes the accounting easier, and you're able to see what it was spent on and you're able to, to put in more fraud flags, etc. So I think it was, it was sort of those two technologies mm-hmm. popping up and, and our people kind of getting their heads around how to use those that's, uh, that's made a difference. And now, he just recently authored a paper with one of the people in our finance team uh, based on a trial that we did in Uganda. And the paper was entirely focused on the reconciliation and audit side of how using a token uh, allowed us to create that sort of back-end trail and reduce our administrative costs associated with the transfer and that's getting quite a lot of excitement internally and is helping give us the impetus for the next set of trials. Yeah. Sorry, long answer.
1: That's okay. No, <laughs> I think it's great and um, so kind of leading into that, what are the things that Mercy Corps, if you can share some of them, what are the things that you're working on to actually implement sure. throughout the company?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think just speaking to the point around stable coins, mm-hmm. I think You know, think about it from the perspective of these individuals or or households. If you have very little income and you want to transfer money or you want to hold money in a a kind of savings account but you don't have a bank nearby, right, and you want to or or you have something like a mobile money account which has now become more popular in certain parts of the world, you want to transfer value either within a country or across country for the amount that you're trying to transfer, you're losing so much money, and 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 when people are at the levels of poverty that we know uh, that they are at, um, it's like a heavy tax, um, and it and it's regressive. So the, the you know the poorer you are, the more it takes out of your out of the value that you have. So when we think about these currencies and what we could be doing, uh, if we can secure that value, right? If can if it's not. Uh, can't be uh, fraudulently counterfeit, if we can track it, um, and it has a, a, a way of maintaining value somehow, so either it's pegged to a local currency or it's pegged to something that has some stability, then we feel like that could be a game changer for people who are just trying to move their own, fi- you know, their own value from one place to another, whether it's because you know, in, in many contexts, most of the poor in the world are in you know live in a rural context work in agriculture and they have family members that are usually migrant. you know they, they they migrate to other parts to find you know compensation so they're constantly moving resources across they're moving across anything we can do to make that the cost of that those transactions lower are are really important given that one we already do a lot of cash transfer programming ourselves right so internally that's helpful but then when you talk about empowering individuals, we wanna essentially spread and, and allow access to these individuals to the best technology, the most low cost, secure, low volatility, cross border types of payments. So that just sort of is a segue into why we're sort of, why we've gotten involved with the Libra Association, uh, with the prospect that you know we know so many of, of the benefit, what we call beneficiaries or participants of, of Mercy Corps around the world, use WhatsApp. Mm-hmm. Um, even if that's just an ex- one example or a precedent for what could be of payment systems, where you have an easily or easy to use uh, application on your phone that makes it possible for you to send money just as easily as a text message, mm-hmm. um, is. I mean, is, is, is really a breakthrough innovation, not, you know, if you add that on to the capabilities already of cryptocurrency or digital currencies. Um, and I think that if you just, you know, zoom out from just cryptocurrencies, I think that the ability to keep track of things in a secure, auditable way using blockchain um, is, I mean, it, it adds another dimension to why um, to, to why things are so expensive. It's basically, you pay for the potential risk in systems and you add fees, you add costs, you add, you know, re- because of the regulatory burden, etc. If you can minimize those costs because you have a system that's trackable, traceable, that cannot be forged, that immutable, then we've reduced that cost as well, right? So we're thinking about systems that can be applicable for transferring value, But then there's other kinds of systems, right? There's agricultural value chains. So much of the work that we do at Mercy Corps interfaces with, uh, like I said, uh, people involved in agriculture in, in rural areas. Any ways that we can improve the amount of value that they get in the value chain, anything we can do to improve the fact that when they do things and they grow things in a particular way, that there's provenance, right? That you can track where things came from and that it was grown in a particular way from a particular place. Are things that can build value uh, for those particular individuals, and that's a place where we think blockchain can be useful. And I'll just add one more example from my previous work related to insurance. I used to um, do product or head product at Etheris, which is a company that uses the Ethereum platform for um, smart insurance contracts. And the principle is that, you know, if if something if we all agree that something has happened like an earthquake has taken place or a hurricane has taken place or the temperature has reached a certain level and we trust the source of data we could issue low-cost insurance payouts like at a, at a low administrative cost because we trust the data and if we could do it in a programmatic way like in a software-based way it could be very uh, effective especially for like small farmers um, in this case so Um, the potential of using different elements of blockchain whether it's a digital currency that you're tracking value on or contracts that are on the blockchain which is another feature of blockchain I see as extremely or potentially um, relevant and and I think it could have huge uh, value to what kinds of outcomes we're looking for right every time we put money in whether it's from a donor from individual donor, corporate donor, or a large uh, agency like the USAID, we want to see that money actually translate into real impact. We want people's incomes to increase or their ability to be more resilient, etc. So being able to use technologies that will amplify that are extremely helpful and important.
2: To to be a bit more specific about, you know, what are we working on? (laughs) Um, in addition to the cash transfer programming experiments that we're doing, and, and we've got a couple of things working in that space, so I'll just leave that because we talked about it quite a bit. Uh, we also we also just recently commissioned a study of uh, the Brooklyn microgrid system and the potential applicability of that system in Gaza because uh, Gaza has a terrible power supply problem. All their power comes over the border, it gets cut off every time there's a disruption. Uh, and we were looking at the Brooklyn microgrid model for the tokenized energy credit trading system that was in the background of that, right? So we just recently did an analysis of that. Uh, We also have a program right now that's looking at tokenization of assets within the context of a a security offering that I, I can't go into much detail with about right now, but basically think of it as a tokenization of assets platform and a smart contracts driven environment for exchanging those assets. Um, and then I had another example that's just flown right over my head right now <laughs> if you can think of what i should have said Let me know One thing I get a lot of pushback on is a, a lot of people look at the an agency like Mercy Corps and goes and they think what in the world are You guys doing doing that kind of stuff? Uh, and what a lot of people don't appreciate is Mercy Corps has been around 40 years and the, the Organizations always had a really strong emphasis on market systems development as a result of that We've been involved in financial services for decades and we have, over the course of those 40 years, started more than a dozen financial institutions around the world, including several banks. So we actually have a really strong impetus or a really strong push around building resiliency through economic inclusion and through financial inclusion. So these projects aren't really just from out of the blue, they're actually within a context, a larger context, of our approach to solving these problems with long-term solutions instead of simply showing up and kicking bags of rice off the back of a truck and then leaving.
1: Mm-hmm. It's really interesting because you talk about um, the money transfer and, and different ways that you're rolling this out across different countries. Um, how is user adoption in these countries? Are, th- are they receptive to different types of technologies or different ways to do things or track um, stable coin? Have you had any
2: just uh, The big difference is that some of the places we work, for example, East Africa, uh, mobile money is just widely accepted. Yeah. You know, that idea of using your mobile device as a means of exchanging value uh, is widely accepted, particularly in places like Kenya where the M-Pesa program, if you've heard about it, is widely used. You know, it's not to the level of, of like Alipay and WeChat in China, but it's getting there. So some of the places where we work, there's actually lower barriers to the acceptance of using your mobile device and moving a digital source of assets around. In other places, it's you know it's worse than it is here. Yeah. You know, we, like I said, we work in 43 different countries, so we see really wide varieties. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: that's really interesting. Um, so talk a little bit, if you, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt.
3: No, I was just, I was just sighing. <laughs> out of, out, I was like, oh, he's going to say this. He's heard me say this <laughs> 85 times. He's bored out I, was, of I was sighing out of excitement. I think I was just going to add the, the point that what, I, what we do here is that across, you know, a lot of the countries, there is a lot of excitement and interest and mm-hmm. curiosity about blockchain and cryptocurrency. I mean, I think that does stand out. You know, obviously there's a lot of, Um, concern skepticism questions around uh, you know a lot of a lot of the technology as well Um, but there's a lot of interest I think people are very curious about what kinds of potential opportunities there are how they could use it and so I think that's actually um, it's very encouraging for us because it allows us to actually go into places and speak with people in a collaborative way to think about how this could be useful some of the solutions like these stable coins etc those platforms exist mm-hmm. and so it 's something that people can just figure out how they want to adapt to it mm-hmm. you know there in most cases you need local partners mm-hmm. to actually make stable coin systems and ecosystems work you need vendors to accept right. those those coins yeah. um, you also need liquidity providers you know any kind of stable coin actually needs markets in those individual individual countries that allow you to uh, exchange back and forth um, as well as one of their one of their capabilities so I think um, you know when we go from place to place we're seeing a lot of interest it is still early early Mm -hmm. days but I think that with the amount of um, popularity and the kind of uh, information that's out there I think there's actually quite a bit, uh, and, and given how central money is to how people operate, mm-hmm. I think that to the extent that these ecosystems can be built and set up, people want to take in the, it's cheaper, mm-hmm. it, you know, ideally or, you know, impre- ultimately it will be cheaper, it will be more secure, and I think that there's a lot of potential in, in the years to come for us to see actual uh, meaningful adoption. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Part of, I, I guess one of the questions that I was gonna Talk about because we kind of touched on it was um, regulation um, when you're working in over forty different countries and you're dealing with all the different regulatory bodies. Um, how do you handle that? I mean, or do you? One one bite at a time, I guess. Sure. I yeah. mean, I could I could take
3: I can take a bit. I mean, it's a complex topic. Yeah. Um, and you know, I think regulation. It depends on what we're talking about. Um, you know, if you're just talking about the idea of transferring money, mm-hmm. with even, even if you don't even get into cryptocurrencies and blockchain, already there's quite a bit of uh, uh, engagement with regulators that um, agencies like Mercy Corps have to have. Mm-hmm. Mercy Corps operates in places and in countries where there are actual restrictions. They're either they're countries that are on grade lists, for transmitting and, and, and moving money where we need to actually apply and get exceptions so that we can service and serve uh, certain populations um, and then if we're doing work related to money transfer you know transmitting uh, entities and or moving money from one bank to another we have to have some kind of licensing and registration mm-hmm. in those partic- particular countries mm-hmm. you add you know digital currency stable coins etc that's a whole um, you know that creates new kinds of challenges just because those regulations there are no global regulations right. that are consistent there's, there's no clear regulation across the board for how, how to do this um, each individual countries also have their own opinions about whether or not they want to allow for certain kinds of transactions mm-hmm. um, and so yeah it, that I think itself presents certain types of uh, challenges except that there are countries that are at the forefront as, as far as wanting to allow for certain kinds, uh, these kinds of transactions mm-hmm. under certain conditions. Sure. So it's just a matter of us knowing those things, mm-hmm. talking with those regulators, talking with the relevant entities so that we can work in those places. But yeah, you can't do everything everywhere. There's, right. there's going to be conditions and things are uneven across the world, yeah. right? So, yeah. Yeah. Um, but to the extent that people start to realize, like what I was saying, that the use of blockchain and the use of digital currency is actually in some ways more secure than the status quo uh, we just did a, a blog article about this. I mean, it's fundamentally more traceable, auditable, trackable, and safer. So nothing for, more
2: anonymous than cash. Yeah, <laughs> for, for like all
3: parties to use something that's blockchain based than the current cash based system. So I mean, as people come to realize that and as the system start to develop, I think that there's a strong case for regulators who, who care about it. They have to balance all these issues, right? So. It's just, I think a lot of it is about knowledge and having that stuff out there in the real world.
2: Yeah, Yeah, the the regulatory challenges extend beyond crypto and blockchain. Speaking as like the emerging tech guy, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, for example, we work with drones and some countries have just automatically ported over their man piloting regulations to the drones world, right? And so it makes it very difficult for us to even bring a drone into the country, much much less operate it. Other places restrict the resolution of satellite imagery due to national security reasons, that uh, handicap our ability to use satellite imagery in the wake of disasters. You know, it's, it's always something, right, as, as the old saw says. Um, I think uh, it's worth mentioning at this point that at least part of the work that we do is focused on advocacy and influence and, and trying to influence the evolution of these policies in such a fashion that they don't exclude more people. Uh, So, a lot of what we do right now in in things like even like in the Libra Association is trying to make sure that, you know, this new wave of transformative technology doesn't actually make the disenfranchisement worse, right, which it has the potential to do because the people that are driving it by and large, they're trying to get, they're trying to recoup on investments, they're trying to establish new business models, they're trying to get things done oftentimes backed by a commercial imperative. I'm not saying their intentions are bad, I'm saying their priorities are different. And so so civil society actors like Mercy Corps have a role to play in those environments. Unfortunately, a lot of agencies, because it is bleeding edge, they aren't there. They're waiting for it to get established and proven before they start to engage with it. But by then, it's too late, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Leading into that, talking about um, innovation in this space. What do you think is the biggest opportunity that people aren't taking right now, and more specifically in NGOs?
2: (laughs) I'm not sure where to begin with that one. I mean, um, you know, realize I'm not focused on the broader, on many of the broader NGOs issues, such as dealing with governance problems around the world, right? We've got a dedicated team that deals with that. And and I know, for example, that's a major issue, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, You know, things like uh, uh, digital identity right now is really just a quagmire. There's so many players in the market. We don't have any standards. We don't have agreement on what systems will be accepted. We've got big pushback from sovereign governments. That I see as a major problem. And it's a huge issue for the NGOs that deal with refugee populations in particular. You know, realize a lot of the people that don't have IDs don't have IDs for perfectly innocuous reasons. They were either in a place where they never could get a government ID or they've lost their IDs and they can't travel to the place where you have to go to replace it because they don't have their IDs, right? It's a catch-22 or they come from a country that doesn't have a functional government, right? Try to get a decent ID in Somalia, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, or they've, they've been refugees in flight and for their own personal security, they destroyed their identity documents, right? Uh, And it's a huge section of the population that has this problem. So there's a huge opportunity there for the NGO space. Um, One of the areas where we're pointed at right now is the whole question of financial inclusion. Uh, There is a huge section of the world that's unbanked. We hear these numbers bantered around all the time. It really is reality. Uh, There are a lot of people that, you know, it, it, it isn't a question of do you have a bank account. It's a question of do you have access to financial services, right? Uh, and a lot of people simply don't, uh, either because they are—they uh, don't have the skills, they don't have the assets, they don't have the documentation to prove they have the assets, but oftentimes simply because there's no money to be made in servicing those people, right? And so this is where we feel that that, you know, I, I hate to use the word DeFi, it's become such a cliche in the last few months. This is where DeFi and things like Libra have the potential to actually make a really positive impact on the world and why we engage with those things.
1: Yeah. Well, leading into that, let's talk about Libra. Okay. Yeah. Um, how, talk about how you guys got involved with that. Uh,
2: yeah, so the, the, uh, that. The, the group that was starting Libra reached out to us in, uh, just about a year ago, about 12 months ago. Uh, and ask us to attend a roundtable in Washington, DC. Uh, and we went to the round table and we had no idea exactly what was going on, but uh, it was a very interesting conversation. Uh, I came back to Portland, and, you know, I shouldn't even say that, I literally was on the phone in the taxi leaving the meeting going, oh my God, you can't believe this, we've got to have a conversation about this, this could be huge uh and it took a long time not really a long time it took a lot of work to get the internal buy-in that the risk that was associated with the brand association i.e facebook uh, was going to be something that was palatable to the agency and at the end of the day to make a long story short it all came down to what i was talking about a moment ago which is we felt that it was more important to have a seat at the table to see if we could influence this in a way that did not increase disenfranchisement than to wait and see what came out and hope for the best and then bitch about it afterwards if we weren't happy with it, so we thought that that the brand risk was worth the the ethical, uh, or the moral, if you prefer, imperative that we be present and be the voice of those people who could be negatively impacted by this and who also could be very well served by it if it was designed in a conscientious and ethical manner. Uh, so that's what brought us to the table. I mean, we're not. You know, you probably know this, it was, it was $10 million to be accepted as an association member. We got them to waive that requirement for organizations like Mercy Corps and Kiva and Women's World Banking and Heifer, who are also members of this organization. And we've done a lot to try to influence this and keep it on track. Um, yeah, jump in.
3: Yeah, and I think that the important part of, of the way we think about this is you know there is no um, there's no way for us to say what will be the right solution in every single context in every single country mm-hmm. but what we do know is that there's something very promising about you know a certain configuration of the technology and so we are making uh... you know an educated guess that this is in the best interest of the most amount of people that we work with or that we're trying to serve and. You know, We actually look at many different technologies, actually work with and are partners with many different platforms, because we think that we want to understand the technologies, because each each tech stack is different. They have, they all tech stacks have to make trade-offs, and we want to understand what those trade-offs are, and which ones will actually make sense in the field. I think, you know, Libra has a lot, gives us a lot in terms of uh, adoption, usability, because of its integration or potential integration with WhatsApp. Um, others have, I think, other qualities that actually make them stand out in relation to something like a Libra or whatnot. But it's all—it all, it all mat- What matters ultimately is the field condition and the context, because each of those countries has somewhat of a different, you know, sort of requirement. And um, you know, I mean, there's there's Libra. There's all types of you know stable currencies. There's cryptocurrencies like. Bitcoin, Ether, Litecoin, Zcash, et cetera, that have their own trade-offs and their own implementations. Then you have this whole other genre, which is central bank digital currencies, where the bank itself is digitizing cash. And that itself will have an important um, set of consequences for final inclusion and financial exclusion if you're not able to manage that. So for countries that are not able to get everyone in their... A territory, IDs, and/or bank accounts, and/or financial services. Just because they've created digital versions, might mean that even more people will be left out who don't have access to some of these core, you know, access to the core infrastructure. So, we want to make sure that we understand it, you know, regardless of the actual stack that ends up being there, and and enough that we can influence, like like Rick was just saying, influence whether it's government agencies or, you know, humanitarians as a group actually have a voice um, at, the, at various different um, platforms and convenings, for instance, like World Economic Forum or the UN, etc. Um, and so whether it's through influence, whether it's through us actually testing technology, showing that something works in a particular way and stands out and and, and adds value or is more inclusive. Um, and also, uh, you know, another thing that Mercy Corps does is actually we have an arm that invests in technology. So there's there's an entity of Mercy Corps, Mercy Corps called Mercy Corps Ventures, which actually uh, helps startups by you know providing seed stage capital uh, at the early stages to uh, to help them you know test out and develop their uh, their their companies and their and their, their ideas. And it's usually, I mean, it has to fulfill certain Sort of conditions related to it having an overlapping interest with Mercy Corps overall vision we have to see that we can bring value beyond just giving a certain amount of money because we're not giving millions of dollars or anything like that Um, whether it's with partnerships with the country teams that we work in things like that so we see things in a kind of broad view a pretty broad view um, so that ultimately we're going to have an impact Um, and so we think about these in of those at least the, the three or four dimensions that i mentioned
1: sure sure awesome i want to take a couple questions from the audience here um josh do you want to come up and we we'll, since we're kind of talking to the of
4: the mic here?
3: hey
0: so uh how much do you get with emerging technology i imagine a lot of the population you have to deal with um You know, in an emergency, doesn't have things like access to technology. How much of it is figuring out the last
4: mile?
2: Oh, a lot of it's figuring out the last mile. Cash distribution, (laughs) things like that. It is. Well, you know, anytime we go into a a cash distribution situation, there's already been uh, part of our team that's gone in and done a market assessment. And that market assessment looks at practical issues like infrastructure, availability of devices, the nature of the devices that are in the market. But more importantly, we look at things like, how would an injection of cash impact the entrepreneurs, the markets, the existing market? You know, so if we go in and we look and we know that the beneficiaries need rice, but there's no rice in the local markets, giving them cash is not gonna solve the problem, right? Uh, so you, know, you really do a sort of 360 degree market assessment of what's happening there, and then you make a decision about which modality is the way to go forward. And maybe it's direct cash assistance, maybe it's actually showing up with rice in that case, right? But, uh, you know, there's a lot of of work that goes into that last mile problem. Um, You know, we're seeing right now an increase in uh, the flexibility of these technologies. I mean, technologies relating to digital currencies. We are seeing systems that allow us to do a certain amount of offline transfers. Systems that allow us to use feature phones to move money around, these sort of things. And it's really starting to open up stuff for us and making that last mile uh, less challenging. But it always comes down to the practicalities on these things, always.
1: Take another question. Yeah? I, I really
3: like the direction. Okay. You can, maybe you can repeat the question. Yeah.
4: Right. I really like the directions where Mercy Corps go, you know, is going into the blockchain It's even though, you know. It there's a message shooting out saying that you know it's broken by this person or by this address, and so a uh, uh, tracking uh, um, is very possible with Ethereum, mm-hmm. you know. And even now, the, they're tracking where uh, the shipping goes to each area, and you can do that with boxes of food or supplies. And another thing, I was wondering if Mercy Corps was willing to look into uh, displacement. Where it's either refugee, like you said, or because of climate change, and it's, uh, it's taken over land, and people have to uh, to flee, and so would uh, a piece of land uh, would be measured under that ownership, you know, mm-hmm. uh, where surveyors, land surveyors would be, you know, given the credit to that person, where the government of that person uh, or that family would owe um, some kind of um, money. To the family instead yeah. of just losing it. So is that like something that you would look into, like Venezuela, Nevada, sure. or is yeah. Sweden, sure. you know, Sure. Yeah. Sure. Like yeah. Yeah. No.
3: Right? Thank you for that question and and those those ideas and comments. I think. Um, yeah, you're thinking very much like we are, um, or at least we have a lot of similarity where we're. You know, whether in your first example, the idea that you can track things using these addresses and. Um, and, and be, whether you want to trace something, uh, the movement of something, or you want to track whether something has been manipulated or not, I think is extremely helpful, extremely important technology, um, and it is something that we're looking into. I think the, the, the questions come to like last mile kinds of question as to, to the extent that we want those things to be relevant to people in very remote locations you just have to have a lot of, there have to be a lot of conditions met for the technology to actually work in those conditions. But you know, from a humanitarian logistics perspective, I, you know, we can already see that there's, there's a relevance for this kind of technology. I mean Mercy Corps is not focused heavily on those types of operations. There are other agencies, other peer agencies that do a lot more of the logistics and distribution of food aid and things like that. Um, but to your second question, which is also very interesting, um when it comes to climate change and or disaster related displacement i think um, you know there's a bit of a there's a double edged sword here so i think that regardless of the technology it would be great if people had you know land records or you know occupancy records that would were tied somehow to compensation if there was like a flood event or you know, their land just became uninhabitable for whatever reason. Um, and, I, and I think that to the extent that we can use technology to, to make that quicker and cheaper and more effective and secure, I think that that's great. Um, there tends to be debate around the use of blockchain for land records. Um, and, and that's primarily because, um, you know, who, set, who determines who will get, you know, their name on the records can still be manipulated, right? So you 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 create an immutable record. That's you know is is very um, it can be very effective in 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 the context of a disaster if you already know who owns what and that you need to compensate them. But when it comes down to determining well who owns what on the blockchain, right? Before it became immu- before it becomes immutable, there's a there's the risk of politics and or corruption or manipulation that people are very wary of because you don't, you may not have a chance to question or negotiate or you know, um, push back at a later date if everything is kind of Im- made immutable. I mean obviously there's, there's ways to get around it but I think that's where there's sensitivity and anywhere where governments have the authority to do something, they will be very cautious before they implement something that they don't have direct control or, or complete familiarity with so to the I think it's likely we will see the use you know blo- governments using blockchain in various different applications we already see trials and different ways in which they're looking into it but I think it's, it's going to be a very cautious steady approach that they take to, to make sure that either it's a system that, that they manage pretty either centrally or if it is more distributed that there are mechanisms for uh, I mean, ways for them to control or have more uh, say in some of the governance, um, at least at this stage. Yeah.
1: I saw a hand over there. Yeah.
2: yeah. So I'm very curious. Uh, your projects are all in the developing
3: world where the economies are perhaps as unstable as the fiat currencies are. And I'm very curious about the nature of the
2: conversation with the vendors who are going to deliver products and services when you come in to talk about something like stable coins mm-hmm. or, a, uh, or a token that you might develop. And how do you explain that to somebody who has no context? You know, it? Uh, it, it's not as bad as you might think. Um, first off, in uh, the place where we recently did the crypto trial was in Uganda, uh, like Kenya, Uh, perhaps not at the same level there's there's really good acceptance of mobile money Uh, and so a lot of people are used to having a mobile money account that they use uh, that interacts with their bank account in some fashion so really it it wasn't terribly difficult to get the vendors on board with the idea and once they discovered that they didn't have to handle cash or these weird little vouchers they could lose uh, and that they could exchange the money back into the local currency easily at their leisure uh, and that the accounting and reconciliation were much easier, they were actually quite enthusiastic about it. Um, there were some other problems that were unrelated to that, but, but getting them to get their head around it wasn't really a big problem. And I think by and large the reason that was so was because you know, we'd been in the country for a number of years, they trusted us, we had relationships with other vendors, and so our reputation allowed us to have those conversations with them and have that credibility. If we walked into some place cold and had to start from zero, yeah, it would probably be difficult. I, I mean, just based on what it's like to walk into a company yeah. that's entertaining and moving, the decision makers don't even understand
3: the technology.
2: Yeah, we, we, uh, we, 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 we try not to use the word blockchain a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what would
4: you use instead?
2: Well, in that case, we would, we would call them digital vouchers, or digital tokens. OK. Yeah. Electronic vouchers. <laughs>
4: awesome, yeah. Um,
1: one really interesting um, aspect that I've been curious about is tokenizing personal health care um, and if Mercy Corps has any thoughts or experience.
2: We actually, though we have a very broad portfolio that covers a lot of areas, we do very little health related work. Uh, we do uh, water and sanitation work. Uh, we do a tiny bit of tuberculosis work in Pakistan, but that really isn't something that's, that's a Mercy Corps thing. That said, what you're talking about, which is you know the integrity of, of personal data and the privacy of personal records, is a huge issue at the agency right now, uh, originally driven largely by GDPR because we also have a European branch and uh, a number of our donors are European and so those grants all come with a requirement that we're GDPR compliant. And getting our people to understand that you know you can't, yes we use Google Drive but you can't put beneficiary records in Google Drive because Google Drive privacy is really not all it could be. Uh, You know those sort of things are actually a really big lift around the agency right now and our IT team uh, courtesy of Cisco, again, Cisco funded uh, our, uh, a lot of this for us, uh, has spent a big hunk of the last year upgrading systems, formulating best practices, providing guidance to the teams, and we're really watching it closely right now because it's a huge issue.
1: Yeah, I think being able to provide that value, to in humanitarian efforts would be amazing.
2: Yeah. Well it's it's just it's really a hot potato right now being able to share beneficiary information. Right. You know for example we we work in a refugee camp. Let's let's just use the Zaatari camp in Jordan as an example. There's probably 10 other NGOs that work in that camp and we all have contact with the same group of people, right? You know They may have had their daughter's immunizations done by MSF, Doctors Without Borders. They may be getting food relief from Oxfam. They may be getting direct cash transfers from us. They may be getting employment. But we aren't able to share those records easily without everybody freaking out about GDPR and such. And it's really a huge problem, frankly.
0: Yeah, first off, thanks for coming. This is great to hear from another enterprise kind of work area outside of some of the finance space. Um, I was curious, you mentioned in reference the Kiva Project and something I've been following, and was curious if uh, your work today outside of the, I I like to how you called it, the financial resiliency when engaging in commerce um, and engaging there. Uh, Are there any collaborations going on with, with Mercy Corps and say the Kiva Project when, or, People like to talk about cross-chain communication, Mm -hmm. right, with regard to identity in some of these rural areas and how, you know, beneficiary information could be tracked against that. I was curious if you could speak to any of that in terms of how identity plays a role in terms of this this liquidity across borders.
2: Yeah, well, a couple of things there. First, uh, the sector as a whole really has sort of a horrible track record of collaborating, to be frank. Uh, And it's something that we push for and we push for expanding but uh, there are a lot of barriers in it, including the fact that you know, even though all of these organizations are humanitarian organizations, they're focused on delivering benefits to the beneficiaries, the reality is they're competing for funding from the same set of donors, and so they're all a little competitive with each other. Uh, we are not collaborating with Kiva, but not for any of those reasons. The reason that we're not doing anything with Kiva is that the Kiva Blockchain Financial Inclusion Program right now is focused entirely on Sierra Leone, where we don't operate, Mm -hmm. right? But uh, that said, we are in close contact with the Kiva team. They're on Libra with us as well. Uh, We speak with them regularly. We keep an eye on what they're doing, and we try to learn from each other. Uh, The World Food Program is very active in this space with a program they have called Building Blocks, which uses a blockchain accounting system behind a cash transfer program protocol that they've deployed in Jordan and several other places. We're currently involved with them uh, in a number of different ways, including uh, helping a bit with governance on that platform and looking at using their platform in South America. So there's a situation where they're able to convene a group of NGOs to work together through a cash transfer consortium. So, you know, slowly, slowly, people are starting to realize that, you know, there, there, are, there is a network effect from using these technologies correctly, and they're sort of figuring out what the best practices are that allow them to do that with a risk profile that's acceptable to the agency.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you guys so much. We are at a time. I know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, thank you so much again. Thanks Rick for having and us. Alpen. We really appreciate coming. having yeah. a chance to yeah, talk about our work
2: outside of our sort of, you know, the group of people we normally see yeah. at NGO trade shows.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so before we wrap up, one thing that we like to do as a part of our closing, very similar to what we do when you guys come in, is we leave somebody with a question, a, a networking question, um, so that as we wrap up, people can sort of engage in additional networking <coughs> conversation. Um, what is one question or a thought you want to leave our audience with um, to engage in that Why
2: conversation? You kind as of ambush us with that one. We yeah. should have had like a really beautiful pat answer <laughs> for you,
3: Alpin. Over to you. <laughs> well, I mean, when when people, who, it, it has a bit of a preface. So for people who are enthusiastic about blockchain. And its transformative uh, impact or disruptive impact. How do you see it playing a role, or how how and how do you see yourself playing a role in um, in shaping that um, for you know for vulnerable communities? Um, yeah. That's that's my question. Yeah. And um, I mean, it's a question that I wrestle with. You know, I've I've been in, involved in different iterations and different kinds of projects. And I, and I think that it's important to think about um, how, how, what kind of consequence impacts it can have for those people. Yeah,
1: awesome. All right, guys, there you have it. Um, let's uh, give a round of applause to Rick and Alvin. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you for listening to the TF Blockchain Podcast. Please help us continue to spread blockchain, Bitcoin, and crypto awareness by sharing this podcast attending our events, following us on social, and rating and reviewing this podcast by clicking all the stars on our homepage so we can be more accessible across Apple, Spotify, and all podcast platforms. Thank you for your support. Keep learning, keep growing, and keep building. The views and opinions expressed at TF Blockchain events and podcasts are solely those of the ones presenting and do not necessarily reflect the positions or opinions of TF Blockchain. TF Blockchain is not responsible for the opinions or content of its guests and does not endorse any particular company or currency. This podcast is for
3: informational purposes only and should not be used to make investment decisions.